sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. So do you remember the excitement you may have had when you got that call? The call that said, congratulations, we'd like to offer you the job. Um, maybe that call didn't come over the phone. Maybe it was a written letter that said, we're pleased to announce that you've been accepted to the university of and whichever one you just applied to. Or perhaps the call that said, congratulations, Mr. Nielsen, you have just won the mega million jackpot. I never did get that call though, that wasn't for me. Um, or maybe you can think back to a time when that person you were interested in gave you a call and said, would you like to go to dinner together on Friday? This past week was important for a lot of college football seniors um, who got a very important call from an NFL head coach that they had just been drafted, that they could expect a contract with a significant number of zeros in it. Now, whether it's for a date, a school, a career, that call can be life-changing life-changing at the time, seeming like it's the most important thing that could ever happen to you. And I think you'd agree that most of us want something significant, not only to happen to us, but for us to contribute something significant. We want our lives to be meaningful. And so these are days when a call like that is exciting. It's really uh, something that we look forward to and, and changes us for the rest of our life. Well, responding to the call of God eclipses all other calls. It makes your life significant, and it means your life, if you respond to the call of God, will have eternal ramifications. And today we're going to take a closer look at the call of Saul, the person who likely has had the greatest influence on your own theology, your own understanding of who God is, his plan for, for each person, his character, his will, his ways, most likely, this man called Saul has had the greatest influence on who God is for you. Consider, for example, how much of the New Testament scriptures is written and contributed by the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul. Now, sure, John, who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st and 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, is probably in terms of the uh, volume, or is in fact the greatest contributor, just in terms of volume. And then there was Luke the physician who also wrote the book of Acts that we, um, excuse me, yeah, Luke the physician who wrote his gospel and also the book of Acts that we're studying today. But consider also that the book of Acts is much about Paul and the fact that he also wrote 13 epistles, maybe he Hebrews as well. So he contributed not only his letters, but also his life story to the New Testament. And consider also that Paul traveled extensively and planted all those early churches. And his letters provide us with a systematic theology of God's character, his plan for the ages, his doctrine of salvation, and grace through faith. But so today we're going to see how his conversion and his call started this remarkable person's influence on the rest of history, and even on you and me. And contrast that with last week, where we looked at the life of Philip, who was a very rather obscure person, and yet, of course, his influence did extend as well. But Paul's influence, I think we can never overestimate 
the impact that Saul, who later became Paul, had upon the world. And I think we'll understand some of it through the account of his conversion. So if you have your Bibles, then turn with me. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. And for today, I'll just read the first nine verses with you. And then as I continue through chapter nine, I'm going to summarize and highlight a few verses rather than reading all of the text. But let's at least read all of the text of verses one through nine. In Acts chapter nine in the English Standard Version, beginning in verse one, it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So while the disciples of Jesus were being witnesses in Judea and Samaria, as we saw in the previous chapters, Saul was trying to hinder them by arresting them. He was zealously trying to suppress the Christian witness. And he'd been given authority by the high priest to go to the synagogues in Damascus and arrest any who belonged to what was then now called the way. The stoning of Stephen, if you may remember for some weeks ago, has caused the disciples to scatter into the surrounding regions. And apparently the witness had managed to reach Damascus as well, because we see there was a witness there in a man named Ananias. And at the time, the Christian movement was still centered around the Jewish believers being converted to Jesus as the Christ. And so this Saul, as he was nearing Damascus, when the resurrected Jesus appeared to him, he appeared as a heavenly flash of light. He fell to the ground. He heard the voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when he asked who it was, the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Jesus then instructed him to go into Damascus where he had already planned to go, but now to wait further instructions. Now, imagine for a moment how striking that the realization would be for this Saul. To realize that Jesus really is raised from the dead and alive, just like his disciples had been saying all along, because he was on his personal mission to silence them all. Imagine how he had to realize that he was personally affecting Jesus. His persecution, by persecuting his disciples, he was really persecuting the Messiah himself. He was thinking that he was only attacking people. And Saul was actually standing in the way of God's plan of salvation when he thought he was only doing the right thing. Remember, this was the Saul who, in his words later in Galatians, says he advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Saul had to be led into Damascus because now he was blinded by that encounter. 
the others traveling with Saul could not see anyone. They heard a voice, but they could not understand it, as we'll hear from his testimony later in chapter 22. But when Saul got up, he could open his eyes, but he could not see with them. He had to be led by hand with those who were traveling with him. He was blind for three days and didn't eat or drink anything. Later in the verses, we'll discover that Paul did have other visions while he was there. He spent time praying. One of his visions was that Ananias would come to restore his vision, but he was, he was overwhelmed with Jesus' arrest and the realization that he had been opposing God all this time. Now, for you and me, our call, the Lord's effective call on our lives, we might not be visited by heavenly blinding light, but we are nevertheless spiritually awakened by a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, one that leads us to believe that he truly is the Son of God as he claimed, just as the early followers attested. What we share in common with Paul and others who have received the effective call of the Lord is that we all have a personal encounter and we all have a spiritual awakening. But the place, the time, the people involved, the circumstances that we're going through, the evidence, the words that convinced us, they're all unique to our own experience of accepting Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Savior and Lord. So the Lord's effective call on our lives is personal. It's unique to us. And consider for a moment that the world can basically be divided up into those who have accepted that call and accepted that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and those who deny that he is. For the denier, Jesus might be at best a good teacher, a wise sage, a prophet, at worst a false prophet, a delirious lunatic, even just a myth. But for the believer, we believe the Bible to be historical and accurate, and thus we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, just as he claimed, and he is the Christ, God's chosen, anointed Savior, who saves through his death and resurrection. There may be some who verbally say that they believe it, but their behavior betrays an entirely different story, because their behavior shows they still exercise some measure of authority over Jesus. That is, they don't submit to the authority of his words, they deem themselves to be wiser than Jesus, they explain away his commands, and that is essentially a denial that he is the Son of God. Because if he's the Son of God, then he has all power and authority over all the universe, including us. And there may be those who verbally say that he is the Son of that uh, he is the Son of God. Oh, sorry, there's those who verbally say that he they are agnostic, meaning they're withholding a belief about him, whether or not he's the Son of God. But that too is essentially a denial, because it's an unwillingness to accept it. And those of us who truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, as revealed in the Bible, will demonstrate that belief through one, a complete surrender to his authority, and two, a commitment to his plan for our lives, not our own plan anymore. And so if we have accepted Jesus as the Son of God and as the Christ, then we've come to the realization through some kind of personal encounter with him. When we accept him, it's essentially a realization that he truly is who he said and he claimed to be. And that his record is faithfully and accurately recorded by those who are witnesses with him. 
And either he is that or he isn't. And whether or not we accept that he's the son of God doesn't change the fact that he is. So perhaps it's better for us to say we received him as Jesus, the son of God. For some, it may have been the preaching that you heard. For others, reading the scripture for yourself. But for all of us who believe, there was a time when we were convinced and were ready to put the rest of our lives on the line for Jesus. And from that moment on, we were then also spiritually awakened. The Holy Spirit came into our life and redirected our lives Godward. Some of us have had perhaps a great and abrupt change in lifestyle when that happened. And some of us may not have needed such an abrupt change in lifestyle because we were raised a certain way. Well, Saul was zealously righteous and faultless according to the law. Let's remember that. And yet the Lord still came to him in a radical way and caused a great and abrupt change. And we all who truly believe will have experienced a similar spiritual awakening where once our darkened hearts filled with pride and stubbornness and rebellion and selfishness and self-righteousness and arrogance and deception suddenly saw the light, so to speak, and realized the truth about our sinfulness and our need for a savior. And when we confess that our lives were opposed to God and we needed Jesus because he is the only savior, then the Holy Spirit came into our hearts and redirected our lives Godward. So not everyone has a call and a conversion experience quite like Saul's, but I pray that you have had your personal encounter with Jesus Christ, one that was unique to you, and you have received his call in a way that brought you also to your knees, whether literally or figuratively, to call upon him as your savior. Because how you respond to that call will be the most important thing that you ever do in your life, and it will determine whether or not your life will have an eternal significance. So the Lord's call his effective call in our lives is, first of all, very personal. But also, let me let, uh, show you what else it is. What happened next to Saul was that while he was in Damascus, the Lord appeared to Ananias in a vision, instructing him to go to the house of Judas and to find Saul of Tarsus. Ananias was a believer living in Damascus. And Saul, he would find praying. He would have also had a vision about Ananias restoring his sight. And Ananias, understandably, was reluctant to do what the Lord Jesus was selling him. Because he had heard, quote from verse 13, from many about this man, how much evil he has done to our saints at Jerusalem. And he reasoned with Jesus saying that Saul had been given authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord assured Ananias that Saul was specially chosen, quote, an instrument of mine to carry my name before the kings and children of Israel. And the Lord also assured Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name and suffer for the name of Jesus. Paul, Saul certainly did, because already in the next verses, it says that the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But he escaped through an opening. In the wall. Now, later in nearly every city that Saul preached in, he was driven out by the very people that he tried to preach to. In Lystra, he was stoned and dragged out of town by those who thought he was already dead. And in Philippi, he was arrested and imprisoned. So Ananias followed the Lord's instructions. He went to find Saul and restore his sight. And Saul began preaching Jesus in the synagogues, proving now 
that he is the Son of God and the Christ. It happened this way. Ananias entered the house of Judas. He found Saul. He laid hands on him and said this in verse 17. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul could now see again. He rose up and was baptized, presumably by Ananias, and he regained his strength when he ate. Remember, he had gone for three days without any uh, food or drink. And his blindness was gone. His vision was restored. And that parallels then his spiritual blindness and now the filling of the Holy Spirit. Saul then spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And it says that he immediately began preaching of Jesus in the synagogue, saying that he is the Son of God. His preaching astonished everyone because he had originally come to destroy the witness of Jesus, remember, and to destroy those who called upon the name of Jesus. But it says there that Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So Saul goes from being a zealous murderer of Christians to become arguably the most significant witness ever of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. So this effectual call of the Lord is not only personal, friends, it is also transformational. It was a wonderful message that, that uh, Christian gave the kids. I won't repeat that here, but it is that metamorphosis that the Bible speaks of. That change in each of our lives and the extent of the transformation. For example, or uh, the, sorry, the extent of the transformation depends not so much on how much change of behavior is required. But the extent of our transformation depends more on how much of our lives we're willing to surrender. See, of course, someone who starts out as a serial murderer and is transformed into someone who's gentle and caring is certainly a remarkable transformation. Think about the extent of the behavior change. But even more remarkable still is what God can do with a person who has surrendered everything to him. And Paul is a perfect example of someone who is otherwise righteous according to the law of God, still being so transformed that God could use him as the greatest witness ever of Jesus as the Son of God. So it's not a question as much of how bad we were before we met Christ, but more of how complete our surrender to God is today, to his will, his plan for our lives, and to the spirit that's been deposited in our heart. So Saul's conversion, remember, did not involve a belief in a brand new God. He was a Jew. He served Jehovah. Even as he persecuted Christians and Christ himself, he thought he was serving the Lord. And after his conversion, he was still a worshiper of Jehovah. And his conversion did not involve a radical change in morality either. He had lived a righteous life, at least according to the law. According to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. But Saul's conversion did involve a major revelation and a clear call that changed his understanding of God in the course of his life. Whereas on the one hand, he'd been waiting for the Messiah. Now he realized the Messiah had come. On the one hand, he'd been working towards righteousness according to the law. And then now he realized righteousness comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. He was previously confident in his Jewish heritage, only now to realize that all Jews and Gentiles together have fallen short of the glory of God and that God was now building in Christ a new body of Jew and Gentile 
Before, he was confident that his mission was to destroy the Jesus movement. Now, he was the one chosen as the instrument to carry the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And, I, and today, there are a lot of quote-unquote good or quote-unquote righteous people still. They still need a major revelation of Jesus and a clear call as a witness of Jesus Christ. Many would consider some, themselves as good or righteous, but they haven't met Jesus personally or had that spiritual awakening. Maybe they grew up in the church, they attended Sunday school, sang in the choir, they went through the various sacraments, and they're under the impression that on Judgment Day, they're good enough. Even those who haven't gone to church regularly, still trying their best to be good to their neighbor, to live an honest life, think that they're good enough to be shown mercy on that day. And especially in societies like here in Denmark, where Christianity and the church before played an important role in the values and traditions, people still think that no conversion is necessary. But the truth is, even the Pharisees and the scribes, even Saul was not righteous enough. And a lot of good and righteous people are still in charge of their own lives. They do good, they avoid evil, but they're using their own definition of good and evil, not God's definition. Their ultimate goal in life is still to meet their own needs and priorities, their own comforts and dreams and desires. The truth is when you've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, when you've acknowledged him as the son of God, then you've also agreed to let him be in charge. That's what it means to believe in him as savior and Lord. And we need to realize like Paul did, for me to live is Christ. And the evidence of that genuine personal encounter with Jesus is a life that is surrendered to his will. More important than our own comfort, we should be more zealous about his plans than our own dreams. And our first priority should be his kingdom. That's the transformation we're talking about because the Lord's effective call on us is not only personal, it is transformational. And he intends to use us mightily, but we need to be fully yielded to him in order that he might transform us into the witnesses who bear his image in our character and who bear testimony of his truth in our words. Well, that's going to cost us. And that's the third point I wanted to make, is that the Lord's effectual, effective call on our lives is not only personal and transformational, it is also costly. Saul boldly preached the name of Jesus and very quickly became a target of persecution, while the church enjoyed a period of grace, of, excuse me, of peace and growth. The Jews in Damascus, whom Saul had confounded, they hatched a plot to kill him and guarded the exits of the city day and night. Saul had to remain hidden in Damascus until the disciples helped him in a daring escape, one that happened at night through an opening in the wall, being lowered in a basket. And then Saul joined the disciples in Jerusalem, but was only welcomed after Barnabas could vouch for his conversion. Paul was what we would say in a pickle. He had his old friends who now hated him, and he had new friends who weren't sure whether or not they could trust him until Barnabas came alongside and could vouch for his testimony of his conversion and his encounter with Jesus and the fact that he was now testifying boldly and preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. And then it says in verse 28 that Saul then was considered one of the disciples. He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Interestingly, 
His preaching in Jerusalem was then challenged by the Hellenists. Suddenly he was under persecution from them. And if you remember, the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. Some were converted to Christ, others were not. And of those Hellenists, they were the ones that brought Stephen to the council. The, the Hellenists that were not converted. They brought Stephen to the council and Stephen was then murdered and Saul was there to approve of his killing. My, how the tables have turned. This very same Saul was now on the other side being persecuted by those Hellenists. And when the brothers learned of a plot to kill him, they helped him again to evade persecution, being brought to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. Meanwhile, it says at the very end of verse 31 that the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit multiplied. You remember Jesus's words to his disciples that when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, of course, is the center of the Jewish faith there. Judea is the southern part of the country, Galilee is up in the north, and Samaria is some area in between. And Luke's account of the apostles and the call of the one who called himself the least of the apostles recounts that progress as the Holy Spirit empowered them to be witnesses. And like the other disciples of Jesus that we've seen so far in Acts, Saul was fulfilling the Lord's plan for the church because he was willing to pay the costly price. And today, the history of the church continues to be written through the lives of you and me who've encountered Jesus, the living Christ, and responded to his call to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says to us, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. What are some of the hindrances to you to completely surrender to God and limit or because what those are, they're limitations to how much he can use us. Are you still wiser in your own eyes, under pressure to conform to the society, doubtful of God's standards, relying may maybe on common sense more than his word, having passions and desires of your own that you're pursuing, reluctant to go through any kind of suffering or waiting, content with mediocrity? Well, God can then only use us as his witnesses to the extent that we're willing to be used. And you might say, well, God doesn't want me to be that prominent of a witness like Saul, who became Paul was. I'm just doing my part in my little corner of the world. But I'm asking you today, what if he did want to use you as a prominent witness of Jesus Christ? Because the Bible clearly reveals that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be his witnesses. And it's going to cost us. So Saul himself had a unique call from the risen Lord, and it changed him completely, and it also cost him the rest of his life. But the Lord then received great glory for all that he did through Saul. And the Lord's effective call on our lives as well is personal, it's transformational, and costly. The Lord's call on your life is more significant than any college acceptance, job offer, date, or promise of heaps of money. Have you responded to the most significant call on your life that you will ever get? Because it's the one call that will make a difference for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your call upon my life.
that day when I realized that Jesus is the Christ and that he had died for my sins. And I thank you, Lord, that you can use my life as well to be a witness of Jesus Christ and for the many occasions I've had to bear that witness. And thank you, Lord, also for the transformation in my life. And I praise you also, Lord God, that whatever cost that it has cost me to follow you, that you have blessed me far greater and more abundantly than I could ever have asked for or imagined. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that we might also learn from Saul's conversion, personal, transformational, and costly. But, oh Lord, may you receive all the glory and praise for what you do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.